Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. On this week's episode, we're tackling one of the most famous women throughout all of history, Cleopatra. In the previous episode, we saw Cleopatra through the eyes of Rome during her relationship with Mark Antony. While the story of Antony and Cleopatra is very popular, I mean, Shakespeare made a play out of it, the Queen of Egypt was already quite famous before all of that. She had her own rise to power that was fraught with sibling rivalries. Her story will be unlike any of the previous episodes I've covered over the pharaohs of Egypt. After all, Cleopatra was the last ruler to hold that title, at least the last pharaoh of a free Egypt. Free in heavy air quotes that I'll get into later, because I'm not going to count all of the Roman emperors who also held the title. She also ruled over an Egypt that was very different from the Egypts of Narmer, the first pharaoh, and Hatshepsut. I mean, that point's kind of a given considering Cleopatra lived about 1,500 years after Hatshepsut and 3,000 years after Narmer, so clearly we've got a lot of ground to cover before even getting into her story proper. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to the mid-first century BCE, to the Roman client state of Egypt, and Cleopatra and the War of the Ptolemies. Cleopatra was the final female ruler of the Ptolemaic dynasty. The Ptolemies were a Greek-descended dynasty that traced their lineage back to the conquest of Egypt under Alexander the Great in the 4th century BCE. We're not going to talk about that until we actually cover old Alex himself. The first ruler of the dynasty, and its namesake, was one of Alexander the Great's bodyguards and helped rule over Egypt after the great conqueror's death as the new province's governor. After a massive political crisis among the followers of Alexander the Great, Ptolemy ruled over a new version of Egypt as the pharaoh. The nation had seen Greek culture flourish in previous centuries, but now, with a Greek ruler, Egypt started shifting to a more Hellenistic, meaning Greek, style of life. The actual start of Greek culture in Egypt can be traced back to the previous generations, potentially to somewhere in the 7th century BCE with the founding of the city of Nacrotis. Nacrotis was a port city in the Nile Delta, the part of the Nile River in northern Egypt that empties out into the Mediterranean Sea. This city remained a fairly stable center of Greek culture in Egypt in the following centuries, even when the nation fell under control of the Greeks' main historical enemies, the Achaemenid Persians. Fast forward a few centuries and Ptolemy I, the founder of the dynasty, begins ramping up Greek occupation across the nation. He also moved the capital of Egypt from Memphis, where it had been under both Persian pharaonic dynasties, to the very Greek city of Alexandria. Slowly but surely, Greeks began to take over the upper classes of Egypt. In order for native Egyptians to gain a foothold in their own nation, they had to learn the Greek language. It even got to the point where some native Egyptians began identifying as Greek in order to secure a better position in life. Despite drastically shifting the overall culture to a more Hellenistic state, the Ptolemaic dynasty made sure to keep the foundation of the culture, namely political and religious symbols and practices, Egyptian. I'll cover more of that when we eventually cover earlier Ptolemaic leaders. But Egypt under the Ptolemies wouldn't stay Greek for long because eventually the Romans would enter the picture. And here's where we get into something called a client state. 
A client state is a nation that is under some sort of dependency to another country, whether it's for economic, political, or military purposes. The term can take on many further meanings, such to the extent that a surprising amount of nations today are considered client states to the United States of America. But let's get back to Egypt. About a century before Cleopatra was born, so in the mid-2nd century BCE, Egypt was targeted by both the Macedonians and the Seleucid Empire, which was a nation made up of most of the land Alexander the Great conquered that was east of Turkey. At the time, the pharaoh of Egypt was just a child, and Egypt was facing severe military defeats. The nation decided to turn to the new rising power of the Mediterranean world, the Roman Republic. After Rome fought back both Macedonia and the Seleucids, Egypt decided to rely on the Republic for future aid. Over the next century, Rome would slowly begin to exert its power over the Egyptian state. It would get to the point where several years after Cleopatra was born, Roman politician Marcus Licinius Crassus, who was a member of the First Triumvirate of Rome alongside Julius Caesar, suggested fully annexing Egypt and making it a part of the Roman world. How much more could Egypt take before it officially fell under the thumb of a republic that was quickly beginning to turn into an empire? Was there anyone who could stand against the might of Julius Caesar and the Roman machine of conquest? Spoiler alert, no. But there was a woman who made a valiant effort. Cleopatra was born in 69 BCE to Pharaoh Ptolemy XII, and as a side note, all of the male rulers in the family were named Ptolemy, and many of the women were named Cleopatra. Our Cleopatra's name is Cleopatra VII Philopater, her given name meaning glory of her father, and her royal name meaning one who loves her father. Her mother is either thought to be Cleopatra V or Cleopatra VI, though there's some theories that those two women might actually be the same person. Cleopatra V was Ptolemy XII's sister. It was very common for Egyptian pharaohs to marry their siblings, as you might remember from the episode over Hepshutzit. This tradition dates very far back and finds its roots in Egyptian paganism with the marriage of the deities Osiris and Isis, who were brother and sister. She had two younger brothers, both named Ptolemy, and two sisters, an older named Berenike and a younger named Arsinoe. From a young age, she was given a very classical Greek education, possibly even studying at the Library of Alexandria. She would have learned both Greek and Latin, but Cleopatra, whether during her childhood or later in life, would go on to be able to speak about ten different languages, including Ethiopian, Hebrew, Arabic, Syrian, Median, Parthian, Trogodite, a language spoken by a group of people living somewhere within Egypt, though their exact location has been attested by different sources, and finally, the Egyptian language itself. This final language was actually a pretty big deal because previous Ptolemaic pharaohs refused to learn Egyptian, instead only speaking Greek. As I said before, during her childhood, Crassus, who we covered during the episode of the First Triumvirate, proposed annexing Egypt to officially make it a part of the Roman Republic. This was around 65 BCE. Though his proposal failed to gain traction, the possibility of annexation stuck in the mind of Ptolemy XII. He began sending lavish presents to powerful Roman politicians, including Pompey the Great and Julius Caesar. He helped fund the Roman military campaigns against the Seleucid Empire. 
Unfortunately, these lavish gifts would go on to bankrupt Cleopatra's father. Things became especially difficult in 58 BCE when Ptolemy XII's brother, also named Ptolemy, was accused of aiding pirates on the Mediterranean Sea. Cleopatra's uncle had been living on Cyprus, so Rome took the initiative to drive off Ptolemy of Cyprus, after which he committed suicide and annexed the island for the Republic. Back in Egypt, Ptolemy XII had raised taxes in order to gain back all the money he had given to Rome. This led to a series of revolts by the farmers of his kingdom. But after Cleopatra's uncle committed suicide, there was further outrage when Ptolemy XII remained silent over the matter. This all culminated in Ptolemy XII abdicating the throne, probably by force, and leaving Egypt. Cleopatra, only 11 at this time, stayed by her father's side. They originally settled on the island of Rhodes where they lived with Roman statesman Cato the Younger. Things didn't really work out too well there. Allegedly, at one point, Cato berated Ptolemy for being a weak ruler while the Roman statesman was in the bathroom after consuming laxatives. Sounds like a pretty crappy situation. After staying with Cato, Ptolemy and Cleopatra stayed a while in Athens before finally settling in one of Pompey's villas about 35 kilometers outside of the city of Rome. Back in Egypt, the nation was being co-ruled by Berenike IV, who was either Cleopatra's full or half-sister depending on who Cleopatra's mother was, and Cleopatra VI, the woman who was either Cleopatra's mother or half-sister. Also, the reason for all the confusion when it comes to family relationships with Cleopatra is because 1. Obviously, the names are all the same, and 2. All of the historical records of Cleopatra come from either the time period after her death or people in Rome who probably never met her. Whatever way you slice it, Ptolemy XII is now a pharaoh without an Egypt, and Cleopatra is a princess away from home. At some point during Ptolemy's exile, the other Cleopatra, her mother-slash-sister-slash-maybe both, ugh, dies, leaving Berenike as the sole ruler of Egypt. There's a couple problems that arise. First, when sent into exile, Berenike and the other Cleopatra had been seen as usurpers to the throne of Egypt. This could have been easily mended if Berenike just sent an envoy to Rome approving her rule. Oh wait, she did that or at least tried. Problem number two, Ptolemy XII hired assassins to kill that envoy. So unfortunately, Berenike could never be seen as the rule of Egypt by their controlling state, i.e. Rome. In the meantime, she went on the hunt for a husband, or at least had her advisors do this for her. Egypt, throughout almost all of its history, was wary of having a sole female ruler on the throne, it was always believed to be a bad omen. If you listen to the episode I did over Hepshetzut, she had to portray herself as a man in order to be given any respect. So eventually, Berenike got married, but she hated her husband, so then she married again. Let's check back in on Cleopatra and Ptolemy XII. The king in exile had approached several of his powerful friends hoping that they could get him back in power. His first attempt was with Pompey, who was his gracious host. Pompey asked the Senate to restore Ptolemy to power. The Senate actually thought this was a good idea, but no one in Rome actually wanted to invade Egypt in order to go through with the restoration efforts. In 55 BCE, 
Pompey managed to convince Aulus Gabinius, the Roman governor of Syria, to lead an army into Egypt in order to get the throne back to Ptolemy. And it just so happens that a member of the cavalry in Gabinius' army was a young man named Mark Antony. But he's not part of the story right now, so forget about him. With an army at their side, Ptolemy and Cleopatra made the long journey back to Egypt. After a short conflict, Gabinius' army had deposed Berenike IV and restored Ptolemy XII as pharaoh of Egypt. One of his first orders was the execution of his daughter, Berenike, not Cleopatra. Also, a portion of Aulus Gabinius' army, a group called Gabiniani, would stay in Egypt to help keep the peace. This further ensured that Ptolemy would remain loyal to Rome. And as far as Aulus Gabinius? Well, his invasion of Rome was actually illegal, so he was placed on trial back in Rome, but was later acquitted on that charge. However, he was also accused of accepting bribes from Pompey, which he very much did, so Gabinius was sent into exile. So besides Gabinius and Berenike, everything was kind of okay back in Egypt, except for the fact that the nation was still in crippling debt to Rome. In May of 52 BCE, Ptolemy XII named Cleopatra as his co-regent. He also wrote in his will that Cleopatra and her younger brother Ptolemy, who would go on to become Ptolemy XIII, would become co-rulers of Egypt upon the pharaoh's death. Well, a year later in 51 BCE, Ptolemy XII passed away. At just 18 years old, Cleopatra was now queen of Egypt. Well, her brother was there too. Also, he was only 10 years old. In classic Pharaonic tradition, they were probably married, although there's no official record of this. They were crowned sometime around March of that year, but around half a year later in August, most officials were calling Cleopatra the sole ruler of Egypt. Cleopatra began her reign by performing several standard ceremonial rites, but not everything was going well. As I said, Egypt still owed Rome more money than she could ever hope to pay back. Also, the Nile River hadn't flooded as much as it usually does, which is an important part of Egyptian agriculture, meaning that there was a drought. Also, also, there happened to be a bunch of Roman soldiers, the Gabiniani, who were technically unemployed and causing chaos in the streets. Aid for that last problem came from the unlikely source of Marcus Calpurnius Bibulus. If you listen to the episode over the first triumvirate, you might remember Bibulus as Julius Caesar's very unpopular co-consul for the year 59 BCE, the man who had trash thrown on him and then disappeared from the public eye. He sent two of his sons to put a stop to the violence of the Gabiniani. Unfortunately, the Gabiniani were tipped off to the arrival of Bibulus's sons, most likely by a member of Cleopatra's court who had done so without the consent of the queen. The soldiers murdered the politician's sons, causing Cleopatra to send the murderers to Rome for trial. However, Bibulus shipped the murderers back and rebuked Cleopatra for attempting to interfere with the Roman legal system. You know, despite the fact that they killed his sons? Yeah, makes total sense. And not to skip forward a few years, don't worry, we'll come back very quickly, Bibulus failing to stop Caesar in Greece during the latter civil war against Pompey is what would later allow Caesar to enter Egypt and defeat the rest of his rival's armies. 
But back to the beginning of Cleopatra's rule. As I had said, Cleopatra was technically ruling alongside her brother, and maybe husband, Ptolemy XIII. But as he was 10 when he took the throne, Cleopatra was more or less acting as the sole ruler of the Ptolemaic kingdom. However, her younger brother had powerful allies within the court, namely his tutor, Pothinus. Due to his inability to act as king himself, Ptolemy had Pothinus rule as regent in his place. Well, it didn't take long before Pothinus started introducing to Ptolemy the idea that he was being pushed aside by his older sister. She was the one on the Egyptian money. She was the one with her name on the important documents. What about still not yet a teenager Ptolemy? In October of 50 BCE, Ptolemy was officially elevated to senior ruler alongside his sister, despite now only being 11 years old. A civil war soon broke out between the two siblings, and after two years of fighting in 48 BCE, Ptolemy gained the upper hand and banished Cleopatra from Egypt, where she found refuge in Roman Syria. To make matters even more complicated, along came their sister Arsinoe. Arsinoe was Cleopatra's younger half-sister and Ptolemy's older sister, probably a full-blooded sibling. Seeing the power vacuum left by Cleopatra's exile, Arsinoe proclaimed herself queen, taking the name Arsinoe IV. Needless to say, Egypt is in a complete and total mess right now. Well, across the Mediterranean, Rome is also in a mess. We're smack dab in the middle of Caesar's civil war. I recommend listening to the episode over the first triumvirate if you haven't yet or need a quick refresher. Originally, as one of their last acts as co-rulers, Ptolemy and Cleopatra had sent a naval unit to aid Pompey the Great in order to alleviate some of the debt to Rome. Well, Pompey was not doing so great in the conflict. In fact, he had just lost the Battle of Pharsalus, his final crushing defeat. So, seeking aid from his allies, Pompey turned to Egypt. Ptolemy XIII's advisors quickly realized that Pompey arriving in Egypt would be a massive mistake. The Roman senator's last commander would likely turn the client state into his new base of operations and continue the civil war there. Egypt was already in chaos. They couldn't afford that. So Ptolemy had the problem solved quickly enough. As soon as Pompey arrived in Egypt, he was assassinated. Problem solved. No more Roman civil war in Egypt. Everything would be fine. Hey, he even had Pompey's head cut off and embalmed as a gift for the guy's rival. What was his name again? Well, Ptolemy would soon find out he had made a major mistake. As goes every story taking place during this time of history, enter Gaius Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar did not take too kindly to seeing his former friend's head on a silver platter. The dictator of Rome decided to keep a relatively cool head and looked around at his surroundings. Egypt was a mess, also very much in its own civil war. So Julius Caesar, as leader of the ruling state over Egypt, demanded both Ptolemy and Cleopatra to end the war and be equal rulers for the throne. Cleopatra decided that she wanted to see what the big deal was with Julius Caesar, so she met with him personally instead of sending an envoy. She quickly got to work charming Julius Caesar. Movies and TV shows might show her charming Caesar with physical beauty, but it's said that Caesar was much more entertained by Cleopatra's mind. 
She was a queen and a military leader after all, despite technically losing on both of those fronts. Ptolemy, on the other hand, marched his armies into Alexandria as a show of force against the Romans. Clearly, Caesar was much more in favor of Cleopatra's diplomatic approach than Ptolemy's here's your friend's head and my army marching towards you approach. But once more, he declared that the two siblings should rule in peace. Things got heated. Ptolemy called for his army. Caesar had Pothinus killed. Realizing that Caesar had chosen Cleopatra's side over his, Ptolemy officially joined ranks with Arsinoe and laid siege to Alexandria while Caesar and Cleopatra locked themselves away in the palace. The siege lasted from late in the year 48 BCE through early 47 BCE. At one point in the siege, hoping to stop a blockade set up by Ptolemy's navy, Caesar's forces started a fire that would accidentally take the Library of Alexandria with it. The library would be restored, only to be destroyed centuries later. The siege was finally ended when Caesar's reinforcements arrived and broke apart the combined armies of Ptolemy and Arsinoe. They forced back the Egyptian army, and it all came to a head in February at the decisive Battle of the Nile. Despite having this smaller army, the Romans were able to thwart the forces of Cleopatra's siblings. Ptolemy attempted to retreat, but his ship capsized on the Nile, and it's believed he drowned. Arsinoe was captured and kept as a prisoner. Once Caesar finally returned to Rome, she was paraded during his triumph to show off Caesar's victory in Egypt. She was then sent to live in a temple to Artemis in Greece. And to very briefly fast forward, she would be executed six years later by Mark Antony under the orders of Cleopatra. But Caesar would take his time before heading back to Rome. In fact, he did not leave until two months after the Battle of the Nile as he continued his relationship with Cleopatra. They had been holed up in the palace for a very long time. It's not very surprising to know that Cleopatra was now pregnant, and all signs pointed it to being Caesar's child. Ptolemy Caesar, more often called by the nickname Caesarian, meaning Little Caesar, yes, like the pizza chain, was born in September of 47 BCE. We'll get more of him later. But for now, Cleopatra and Caesar were dealing with the immediate fallout of the death of Ptolemy XIII and the capture of Arsinoe IV. Well, as dictator of Rome, Caesar had the power to choose who led Egypt. Obviously, Cleopatra was the clear choice. But there was still that whole misogynistic trend about not having a sole female ruler in Egypt. But hey, Cleopatra had another brother. So Caesar had her marry Ptolemy XIV. At this point, Cleopatra was 22, and Ptolemy XIV was 12. Isn't history just something sometimes? Before heading out to finish his own civil war, yeah, that was still happening despite spending months with Cleopatra, Caesar left three legions of soldiers for Cleopatra to help secure her kingdom. It was not too much longer before Caesar and Cleopatra saw each other again. The next year, in 46 BCE, Cleopatra and her brother, and possibly Caesarian depending on which sources you read, visited Caesar in Rome for several months. The Queen of Egypt's presence was… let's say mixed at best. While staying at one of Caesar's villas, Cleopatra was visited by several high-ranking Roman officials. Among them was Cicero, who apparently found her arrogant. 
It was during their time in Rome where Caesar legally granted Cleopatra and her brother the title Sociate et Amicus Populi Romani, meaning friend and ally to the people of Rome. Her presence also saw several developments to the Roman Republic. According to Roman historian Pliny the Elder, an Egyptian astrologer named Sosigenes of Alexandria, who was part of Cleopatra's entourage in Rome, was a consultant to Julius Caesar when the latter was looking to implement the Julian calendar. The pharaoh was also used as a model for a golden statue within the temple of Venus Genetrix. This is much more important than it sounds at first, which should already sound pretty impressive. The goddess Venus, the Roman equivalent of Aphrodite, was viewed as the ancestor of the Julii, aka the family of Julius Caesar and the first several emperors of Rome. So having Cleopatra in a temple dedicated to Caesar's supposed ancestor was a big statement. But that's not all. She was also depicted as the Egyptian goddess Isis, and I really need you to know that the goddess Isis has nothing to do with the modern terrorist group. Isis played many roles in the religion of ancient Egypt, but she was also looked upon as a mother of the nation and a fertility goddess, just like Venus. Having a statue of Cleopatra as Isis further connected the two goddesses and may have been viewed as Caesar trying to connect his family to that of Cleopatra. But the good times for Cleopatra could not last forever. Two years later, Julius Caesar was assassinated on the Ides of March. Cleopatra stayed in Rome for almost a full other month afterwards. Some people believe she hoped to have Caesarian named as the late dictator's heir, hence her reason for sticking around. However, that future for her son wasn't in the cards. Upon the reading of Caesar's will, it was discovered that he had named his great-nephew Octavian as his official heir. After learning that she would not be the mother of the future leader of Rome, and the slight problem of Octavian returning to Rome to gather his inheritance, Cleopatra returned home with her younger brother and co-ruler. Several months later, Ptolemy XIV was dead. It's often said that he was poisoned under the orders of Cleopatra. Even though this narrative could easily be spun into the classic, Egypt hates a powerful female ruler, it's not too difficult to see why Cleopatra would do this. The last time she had ruled alongside a brother, he had tried to kill her. So even though Cleopatra had been the one with all the power in her relationship with the younger Ptolemy, she could have ordered his death in order to fully gain that power. With Ptolemy XIV's death, Cleopatra's son Caesarion was made her co-ruler. At three years old, he was now Ptolemy XV. And as the senior ruler, not to mention the fact that she was Caesarion's mother, Cleopatra was officially the most powerful person in Egypt, and there was nothing to stop her. We're actually going to call it here for the episode. I originally set out for this to be one episode telling Cleopatra's entire story, but clearly that would be a disservice to one of the most famous names in all of history. Also, this is a good stopping point for her story. We began with Cleopatra as a young princess by her father's side and watched her duke it out against all of her siblings in order to become the ruler of Egypt. Obviously, we have plenty more to cover when it comes to the Queen of the Nile. But for now, that's it for this week's episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and subscribe to the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, 
we're going to finish Cleopatra's story. We'll cover her famous love affair with Mark Antony and look into Cleopatra's rule on the home front in Egypt. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. Whoa, 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 whoa.